I did get th- 35 likes on my last LinkedIn post, so. You 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 do Insane. LinkedIn posts. You you actually do that. That's yeah. That's thing that you do. Sometimes. Wow. I've never really met someone who That does is the before. most low status tacky thing I've ever heard of in Morgan. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. That is so rude. People <laughs> on LinkedIn are very congratulatory. They love telling yeah. me, great job. You know, that's because it comes up and it suggests things for you to type. And great I'll job take what I can get. I don't, I don't get, you know, congratulatory, good work, keep up the good work in this office. So <laughs> I'll take it from LinkedIn. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor and Morgan Schottemeyer, our Head of External Affairs. In this episode, we'll be discussing football racism, the sugar tax, and cuts to foreign aid. Social media companies are being condemned for racism directed at players following England's defeat in the Euros Football Championship. This has led to calls for fast-tracking of the government's online safety bill, ending online anonymity, and harsher police action. Daniel, why do you think football is so often being associated with racism? Well, I mean, it's one of the key examples that everyone, or most people, uh, perhaps with you as an exception, Lesh, in the nation, know about, where there are very high-profile people of colour, people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds who are playing a central role. It does seem like there's this kind of history of very heavy nationalism and then associated with elements of the far right, Toby Robinson, Tommy Robinson, sorry, and that kind of culture around football that very much you can see them trying to push back against, you know, the taking of the knee, um, the the push for equality and diversity you you see on the billboards around the stadium. Um, It seems that there is a problem there at the very least. Yeah, and that there always has been a problem. And I, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of most in this sort of area, it's been getting a lot better. You know, 10, 15 years ago, lots of people would be very wary and ashamed of going to an England game um, for those sort of reasons, for the fact that football hooliganism and, and racist chants and whatnot were extremely common. Um, and the hope, I think, for a lot of fans this time round given the very clear nature of Gareth Southgate's team expressing their their views about the need for equality and diversity in the game, I think people felt more comfortable, or at least a lot of people for the first time felt like they could put on an England shirt, they could go down to Wembley, um, they could watch the game with their friends, Mm. and they they could feel like they were proud of of that fact. However, obviously, the the fallout from from this particular crushing defeat it's very sad um but the, the fallout has been far more serious than the yeah. result of the game i find it quite fascinating the extent to which you can see english flags around london i've never mm. seen it be kind of socially acceptable to put out an english flag obviously being associated with the far right i think shamefully so because you should be able to be proud as you are scottish and welsh as you are english or any other nation Morgan, as an as another outsider to the world of football, but someone who was probably just as engrossed as we were in, in the final, what did you make of it all? Yeah, I think that the the whole issue um, with racism in football, as Dan say, it, it unfortunately has been a longstanding and ingrained part. Even in like club football, you have people doing racist chants for certain teams, and unfortunately, these three men put themselves in front of their whole country to uh, do something that none of us could do. 
um, and that they practiced so hard to do, but it's still a great element of luck. And they didn't succeed. And that, and that unfortunately just opened the door to a lot of horrible people. Um, you know, if had mm. these players been white, they probably would have gotten a lot of abuse as well. But obviously it wouldn't be so vitriolic and so so cutting. So it, it, it does hurt that these players who really put everything on the line for the country and, you know, stepped up in a moment of extreme bravery are being slammed for that. And I think if you kind of have a look at what people have been saying on this debate afterwards, you've got some people who are very clearly putting the case that actually most England fans are not racist. Um, and then you've got others who say, well, some of these comments that you see on uh, the Instagrams of the uh, black footballers who play for the England team, well, this is really, really widespread. And for my money, I think that you, you've got to look at the, the survey evidence on this, which I think quite depressingly says that a substantial minority of Brits do hold quite racist or in fact extremely racist views when they're asked under the cloak of anonymity, when, when they don't have to give their identity. Obviously, that, that's likely still nonetheless to be subject to, to underreporting. Do we need to be careful though not to exaggerate and amplify the voices of racists. This is something that does worry me. Of course, there have been racist comments and, and racism express, uh, expressed about footballers, but I almost wonder if the, the vicious response to it kind of normalises racism in a sense. It says racism is a very normal phenomenon going on all over society and, and whatnot. I mean, I, the Centre for Identifying Digital Hate identified 105 Instagram accounts that were directing kind of racist comments towards um, Rashford, Sucker and, and Sancho. And BBC Newsnight analysed those accounts and found 59 of them were outside the UK and just five of them were inside the UK. Now, it's possible some of them are using proxies and whatnot and they're hiding their location. But I, I worry that we jump onto very real cases of racism and then we, we give them a far bigger platform than they necessarily deserve in the process. I, I think you're right to some extent, right? So obviously through social media, then you're, you're going to get a few comments on someone's Instagram or, or Twitter and they're going to be found by someone and they're going to be massively amplified they're going to get 10,000 20,000 retweets and everyone's going to think well this is indicative of how the majority of social media or indeed the majority of the population views these players and of course that's not true and you shouldn't extrapolate I think the, at the same time you do have to think about what the actual attitudes of a lot of Brits are. They might not be expressed on social media. They might not be expressed in the game. It might be that a few fans will, for example, start uh, bullying or, or being violently abusive towards Italian fans after the game, as we saw some some videos there. And I, I guess I'm worried on the other side of things. You're worried, and I think rightly so, that we don't amplify this and make it out like everyone is sending extremely racist comments to people on social media. And I think that's true. But I also think that you, you can't kind of dismiss this as, oh, there's like five or 10 uh, football fans in, in England or whatever that are really, really racist and the rest of them uh, are not or harbor absolutely no racist attitudes whatsoever. I think that that, that is kind of being as naive as, as thinking that these comments are representative. So the debate very quickly moved on from focusing on the actual racist to very much blaming the the tech companies, the social media companies for platforming and, and enabling the racism. And of course, onto one of my uh, favorite bugbear issues, the online safety bill, which is meant to put a duty of care onto tech companies. And then uh, as, a, as a consequence of that, require them to remove content that could be potentially you know, psychologically or, or physically harmful. It did seem quite weird to me that what started off as kind of football racism suddenly became all about big tech. And it was a very quick 
turn in that debate to this legislation that is, quite frankly, far broader in its scope. The, on- the online safety bill will mandate age verification to use websites to see adult content. It'll include the Ofcom having the power to censor what has previously been legal speech on online platforms. It's huge fines for tech companies. It's all these different things, but it's now just being framed around this, this football racist abuse issue. Yeah, and I mean, I was listening on uh, driving back up to um, to London with my dad the day after the England defeat, and we were listening to Radio Five Live, and they were talking about this and talking about how uh, it's really the social media company's fault. And there was a few callers in talking about how we desperately need to get rid of anonymity because it, it, that's the massive problem. Uh, and my dad was, you know, not not particularly into into um, politics in general but instinctively agreed and was saying well yeah you know why, why should you be anonymous all of these people that are sending the the abuse the footballers uh, are doing so because no one can call them out as for who they are no one would say this in the street to someone etc uh, and I think that the, the intuitive case here for for looking at social media companies and, and saying you know why should you allow people to be anonymous except in in very rare situations I think intuitively it makes a lot of sense um but you have to kind of think about from whether we're blaming them for these comments still being allowed to be put up online. There's a big problem with the moderation side of things. So it's very difficult for a social media company to create an automated filter for racist content that covers every single potential emoji that could have racist connotations, for example. That's what a lot of um, a lot of the, the kind of racist comments were using to get around these sorts of filters. Or it might be that a, a particular word in isolation doesn't have any racist content and then if you put it in a sentence then suddenly it does and it's hard for for auto moderation to actually get around that so you know they end up having to hire tens of thousands of moderators yeah and if you, if you take that to its logical conclusion that anything that could be found offensive uh, again as, as matthew said including things that are legal we're talking about people being offended over comments on their appearance or uh, maybe we are talking about protected characteristics like hate crimes which are already illegal we're talking about a a huge number of things here that could be considered offensive and if the social media companies are going to be held liable for whatever is posted online and as dan says they don't have the moderation capacity to prevent this from being posted the logical conclusion here is that they're going to to pre-screen or prevent posting wholesale Um, and i think that's kind of the the hidden danger of cracking down on legal but quote-unquote harmful speech um, when you have this really broad mandate for wanting to censor the speech. The, the, the ultimate conclusion is that social media is not going to operate in the same way that it does now. Yeah, I think the fundamental issue here is just how much content there is online. There is just billions of minutes and words being written and created every single day. And inevitably, some of that is going to be morally, socially, culturally unacceptable. Some of it's going to be unlawful and some of it just going to be things that platforms don't want to host. And it's just genuinely very difficult to try to figure out what is what. It is not easy for Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or YouTube or whatever else to, to work that out. Inevitably, they have to use automated systems. They make mistakes. What I really worry about is there's now going to be this push through the online safety bill to put a lot of pressure basically for them to turn up their automated systems so that they're far more censorious because if they don't become far more censorious, they'll, they'll 
the risk of these huge fines. And then as a result, you end up really limiting the conversations you're allowed to have online. And inevitably, racists and sexists and homophobes will still have those opinions. You can't censor away those opinions. In some ways, you actually want people to express their opinions so you can see them and respond to them. Uh, and, and we've had um, Ruth Smith, who used to be a, a Labour MP, was a, was a Jewish Labour MP who criticised Jeremy Corbyn. She now heads up uh, the Index on Censorship. And she makes the point uh, very persuasively that she actually wants to see when people are sending her threats because that actually gives her a good idea of what the problems are that she's facing. And when the, when you seek to censor all these things out, you, you make it much harder to deal with. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the government's approach here whatsoever. So you've, you've got that argument that you just referenced, Matthew. Sunlight is the best disinfectant when it comes to these sort of views and they need to be expressed out in the open so you can effectively tackle them. Um, and I think that another one that, that applies really strongly here is that defining things like uh, racism or extremism is often very difficult. Uh, and there's plenty of kind of very recent examples of this. The key one that's springing to mind at the moment is, I don't know if you remember, but initially when the, the kind of lab leak um, theory of COVID-19 came out and it was you know not very well regarded or, or thought of as a kind of conspiracy theory, it, it's certainly not now official sources consider it to be a viable theory. When people were tweeting about that um, initially, they were labelled as as racist, and and often, in fact, some social media um, sites would censor them for for talking about something like that. Yeah, well, one of the biggest ironies in this sense was that the government um, yelled "Hail Mary" uh, in December last year when YouTube temporarily suspended Talk Radio's page because of some of the. Uh, claims they were making that COVID wasn't as much of a big deal as the mainstream scientists were claiming. Now, that was done under YouTube's COVID misinformation and health and safety policy uh, that was introduced basically at the start of the pandemic. And ironically, of course, about a week or two earlier, the government in their official documentation on the online online safety bill actually endorsed YouTube's policy as best practice. So on the one hand, the government is literally endorsing online censorship from Google, from YouTube, and <laughs> pushing them in the direction of removing somebody like Talk Radio from their YouTube channel. But when Talk Radio actually does it, they freak out and they say this is unacceptable. And that's, I think, the heart of the contradictions here because the government, frankly, doesn't really know what they're doing in this space. And they're getting all these um, contradicting pressures and they're, they're trying to sort through them and, and do all these different things. And it's just ending up as a total censorious mess. And, and I think legislating in this kind of moment of moral panic is actually very dangerous. Um, I, you know, we, we shouldn't in any way downplay the, the seriousness of, of racism or sexism or homophobia, whatever else it may be, but trying to create legislation around one particular moment when everyone's freaking out about something is inevitably going to lead to low-quality, ill-thought-out legislation. Um, the, the, the other issue that's also come up here, the other solution that is not currently part of the government's proposals but seems to be getting a lot of popular support at least, uh, according to a YouGov survey, which found 78% of people think you should be forced to disclose your real identity when signing up on social media and 37% who thought you should have to display that. Do you think that's a more viable solution, Daniel, or does this cause a lot of other problems? Well, I, I think that it is interesting to see the difference between support for disclosing your identity when you sign up and actually having to display it where there's a huge majority for the former and, and a minority support the latter. And I think that gets to the point that actually people are concerned with and do understand the value of anonymity online. They get the fact that for whatever reason, many, many people don't want to put their full name and their, their details on their Twitter account. Now, the problem is that that often isn't transferred. Uh, the, the thinking about that isn't transferred into well, social media companies can have all of my my relevant details when I sign up. 
Now, you kind of think about the, the sort of issues with this in terms of privacy. Obviously, the big social media companies probably have fairly good data security. However, it's also probably not perfect. And there are very many reasons why someone might be extremely concerned that their real personal details from, uh, for example, a whistleblower account doesn't get leaked um, through a, a hack of social media users' details or hacking that database. So I think that people just don't really realize that there is a risk here when it comes to de-anonymizing people, even if that's just giving your details to Twitter or Facebook or um, the equivalent companies when they sign up. The thing is, I, I think people really struggle to, in some ways, put themselves in the mind of someone for that would be an issue. So it's easy to imagine a dissident in, say, China, for example. Um, you can understand very quickly and easily and intuitively why it is that they would not want to give their details to uh, Weibo or to one of the, the social media companies if they were tweeting negative things about the Chinese Communist Party. But in Britain, what you end up having is people thinking, well, we live in a free liberal democratic society. Um, so why on earth would I care if a social media company had my details? It's not like I've done anything wrong or that there's any reason that I should be worried. But I think there are plenty of pretty easy examples for why someone wouldn't want to do that. Um, it's not just the kind of classic whistleblower. It's also someone who maybe they're speaking about uh, partic their particular sexual preferences online and they live in a community where that's not acceptable, those particular sexual preferences. And they're worried that if it comes out that they're the one behind a particular account that's talking about that and maybe the, the struggles associated with that community, then they're going to end up getting um, getting violently attacked or something. There's infinite different ways that even in a society that is as free as as you could be worried about your anonymity well from one effort to attack our online freedoms to a very real life classic nanny status threat in a new sugar tax proposal a government commission review written by leon founder henry dimbleby has called for the government to introduce a tax on salt and sugar Dimbleby also wants people to reduce meat consumption by 30%, as well as state handouts of healthy food and higher barriers to trade. So let's start with the tax on salt and sugar. What, are the, the, what sort of impact is that likely to have on the cost of goods for households, Matthew? What's the kind of scale of this tax? And do we think that we'll actually do much to reduce obesity? Have we been here before? Look, I, th I think we have been here before, and, and Daniel, you're certainly an expert on the, these nanny status insanities. It, it seems like it, it, this natural solution to practically any societal problem for these people is a very top-down, heavy, let's put a tax on something to try to manipulate people's behaviour. Ironically, it was, it's was it been called a nudge by some people. It's not a, this is not a nudge. A nudge would you know, gently encourage. This is this is a jackhammer to particularly lower-income households and stripping away their, their access to foods or, at the very least, increasing their costs. And this is often forgotten is when you put a tax on something, a, a tax is effectively a prohibition to people who can't afford it. So they end up being extremely unfair distributionally. And we worked out... Um, in some work that we, we did jointly with the, the Taxpayers Alliance, the Institute of Economic Affairs, this would cost somewhere in the vicinity of about £172 per household per year. That adds up to about £4.8 billion every year added on the, the cost of groceries and the, the cost of going out to eat. And it obviously depends on the kind of particular content of each goods, but you're seeing really kind of quite substantial increases in the cost of things like strawberry jam up almost 50%, cornflakes up, up by one third, uh, Ketchup, soy sauce, Skittles, 
um, chocolate bars, brownies, all, all those kind of things that some of them essential, some of them that just make life worth living will, will go up in price. And there's a bit of a contradiction at the heart of the claims here. On the one hand, they're saying, oh, no, 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 th- this is not going to actually increase cost of living, but it's going to raise a billion pounds. It's, obviously, those two things cannot simultaneously be true. Uh, some of the goal admittedly, is to reformulate, as in encourage the reduction of use of sugar and salt in the products. And that's to some extent what did happen when it it came to the the soft drink sugar tax. Now, in my opinion, that's basically just making life a little bit miserable for people. It's it's smaller size servings uh, that mean people get less value, which is kind of effectively a type of food inflation anyway, as well as uh, making foods taste worse. Iron Brew classically uh, had to bring out their original recipe once again because people just weren't satisfied with the low sugar version. So clearly, to some extent, people want these goods. People enjoy these goods. They get some satisfaction out of them and we should respect that. That doesn't mean that obesity isn't an issue, but it means taxing something is not the solution. And it's ultimately the, the, the benefit from this is, is tiny. It's something like 20 or 30 calories on average uh, across across the population a day. And that's about half a chocolate biscuit it's, it's nothing substantial in terms of people's diets and it's unlikely particularly if you are obese that you're going to reduce your consumption substantially enough to have any impact whatsoever on your diet so it's it's very marginal changes you're going to you're going to have in terms of people's behavior for what is quite a big going to be quite a big cost particularly for lower income households for the, on their food bills uh, morgan when i have these sort of debates with people who support things like uh, sugar taxes and, and salt taxes and whatnot they often point out that Whilst it's true that these taxes are regressive on an income level, obesity is regressive as well in the sense that people on lower incomes tend to uh, be more likely to suffer from obesity-related health conditions and whatnot. Do you think that these sort of taxes, if if they do reduce obesity, are worth it in the end? It's just a trade-off that we should be willing to make. I think the if they reduce obesity is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that question because, as Matthew just said, we're talking about negligible negligible amounts of calories per day and that's if the policies have their intended effect you know the government's own impact assessments on a lot of these nanny state policies like the advertising ban which we've talked about in the past their own impact assessments show that they're not going to be particularly effective and the assessments are done in non-scientific non-real world scenarios so these are not evidence-based policies these are purely reactionary policies that are about control a big thing here is that it will make it harder to for people to buy food. And the people that are putting forth these proposals probably aren't live well, definitely aren't living paycheck to paycheck. They aren't feeding families on, you know, minimum wage. All of these things matter. You know, a 50p increase on, you know, a packet of cereal, it makes a big difference when you're feeding a family. And that's what's the biggest issue here is that we have these entitled restaurateurs who are, um, you know, turning around and saying, fool you for eating the food I provide you on the high street. Uh, I'm going to make it harder for you to buy groceries now. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Morgan, this will apply to restaurants, but the marginal impact in terms of increased cost to restaurants is very small because just it's more expensive to eat out. So to some extent, it might push people to eating more out and therefore there might even be a little bit of, you know, extra sales for someone like Leon. Yeah. And one thing about eating out as well is it's probably harder to eat healthy when you're eating out because you don't have the nutritional information necessarily. Serving sizes are are provided for you, all of that. But that's, again, what we're talking about is th- this tax is going to make it harder for people to go to the grocery store, you know, pick up their all of their goods for the week. It's going to make it more expensive. And 
it is going to hit poorest families hardest, just like the buy one, get one. They wanted to ban buy one, get one offers for um, ready meals. Who do you think is eating ready meals? You know, busy families, maybe you have a single parent who's just trying to get food on the table. All of these policies are incredibly uh, regressive and sent to us from our well-knowing overlords. I I do feel like there is a a genuine just complete disconnect between the sort of people that propose these nanny state policies and what it's like to go to the supermarket on a budget like you you put it really well you know I'm, I don't know Henry Dimbleby's background particularly well it could be that he, he lived hand to mouth when he was growing up and, and really struggled I have absolutely no idea that might be the case but as, as a general point I think that a lot of these people they don't get the fact that when someone goes to the supermarket on limited budget then they have to make these sort of decisions about, oh, do I spend an extra 50p on cereal? Oh, do I spend an extra 30p on the better jam that I'm going to get for the breakfast? Things like this. They just don't realize that those are actual conscious decisions that ordinary people have to make on a day-to-day basis every time they go out shopping. And almost condescendingly, a kind of like, well, who, you know, it's basically a who cares if a chocolate bar costs an extra 12p and stuff like that. So, well, you might not, but actually a lot of people do and especially when that adds up to as Matthew said nearly nearly 200 quid like 170 odd quid a year um extra spending for the average family at, at the end of the day it's it's just complete lack of awareness of the ordinary living situation of the majority of people who, who live in this country uh, one of the things that he didn't do uh, and didn't call for which thank goodness it would have been even more unpopular than the media report suggested already is uh, is a meat tax he he rejected this in the report in the national food strategy report but he does still want people to somehow reduce their meat consumption because uh, meat obviously plays a role in climate change Uh, Matthew do you see this as something that's likely to to happen Uh, are there ways that we can discourage people from consuming meat other than a meat tax yeah look I I thought it was quite hilarious of Dimbleby to basically say I would have really liked to do a meat tax but to have enough self-awareness to then, well, maybe it's actually not going to be very popular. And if I want to achieve my sugar and salt tax, maybe calling for multiple taxes at the same time, I, I, I shouldn't go down that approach. I mean, what Dimity was trying to do was this whole of life cycle assessment of food. And part of that was about the environmental impact and this, this underlying idea that, well, meat is very environmentally um uh, concerning. Now, the extent to which it is environmentally concerning is, is true to some extent. Um, it does have a relatively big environmental impact compared to other foods, um, takes up a lot of physical space. What was kind of disappointing, though, from Dimbley was this, this just this call for, to change behaviour. You know, I just want people to magically reduce um, their meat consumption by 30% and I don't really know how they can do it. We're going to nudge them to do it. There weren't really much in terms of meaningful proposals that I think can have any realistic impact on the, on the meat front. There's this great irony there, though, that Dimbledy then didn't really focus on the obvious alternative. And um, there's a little bit in there about cultured meat, but I would have liked to see actually quite a lot about, well, the obvious alternative, if you if you want to reduce the environmental impact of meat, is to just completely get rid of animals in the equation, have cultured or, or lab-grown meat. And there's a bunch of regulatory issues around that that really hold back the industry and make it quite difficult from the Food Standards Authority that would have been something excellent to address. But unfortunately, Dibbledy's mindset is very much, let's subsidise this, let's tax that. It's just a very top-down manipulative rather than thinking about it in terms of innovation and technological change, which would have been a much better approach if you want to talk about reducing the the environmental footprint of our, of our food habits. So Morgan, do you think the government needs to do something to 
protect our precious and hallowed NHS from the uh, the habits and the the whims of obese people, or or is this just a kind of a stick with which we we use to beat um, people who are overweight and point at the NHS? The NHS guilt complex has really uh, exploded Ooh. because of COVID. I mean, our entire lockdown strategy was based on protecting the NHS, and it worked because so many people in this country think that the NHS is some. Uh, you know, hallowed institution that needs to be saved at all costs. The NHS is meant to serve the people. It's meant to provide health care for the people, um, not the other way around. It's not our jobs to uh, protect an institution. It's the institution's job to be there for us. Um, and I think that's what's really damaging here is the idea that we need to structure our lives around a bureaucratic institution that is meant to provide healthcare for us. So, I mean, ultimately, if you, if you follow this down the logic line that we exist to protect the NHS, all we should be able to do is a kind of greyish slug or maybe something like Huel for every single uh, meal of our lives in order to be, you know, fully uh, capable, you know, bodies to minimise our impact on the NHS. Can't drive, you might, might endanger the NHS if you get in a car accident. Well, that's true. Yeah, I think we should all stay at home in, in our, you know, perfectly protected world and never socialise, never drink and never never smoke and never have any any freedoms or joy in our lives. But what really irks me more than anything else on this is that it's complete and total garbage that you can protect the NHS, you can reduce burden substantially on the NHS by reducing obesity. I mean, we saw this last year when uh, Matt Hancock, if you remember that guy, came out and said, if, if everyone who's overweight loses five pounds, which would be a huge achievement, um, it would save the NHS 100 million pounds over five years. Now, he was putting that out there as if that, that was some massive figure. The NHS budget at the moment, and it's increasing every year, is over 160 billion pounds. So that means if over five years you're saving 100 million pounds, that's less than 0.0125% of the budget. That's the amount of money spent by about 6am on January 1st of the first of those five years. So although obesity is a, is a burden to some extent on the NHS, th- this whole agenda is completely lacking in any meaningful metrics in terms of what it's going to achieve in reducing obesity and then what that impact will be on the NHS. And it's actually extremely, extremely small, basically an accounting error in the total budget of that system. Yeah, it's worth stating that a lot of these estimates of obesity's cost to the NHS are, are not um, net estimates. So they don't take into account the cost savings that you get from uh, the, the morbid stuff about people passing away earlier because they're obese, etc. So the kind of fiscal case for it is extremely weak, as you said. And I think, as Morgan said, the kind of moral case here, you know, we have an NHS under presumably a, a presumption that most of the population agree that it, it should be there for absolutely everybody regardless of their behaviors and what they do and yet at the same time we want to use it as a means of controlling people's behavior you know the, the logical conclusion of that line of thinking is that we just tax bmi or, or some other proxy of um of unhealthy weight more directly uh, and i'm sure i could probably find some crazy nanny status who would nod along and say yes that sounds like a fantastic idea but the the point is that even the kind of the free market case for these sort of taxes like um on externalities in order to compensate for externalities obesity is a is a tiny externality of the grand scheme of things and you're trading that off um, against people's freedom to make their own dietary choices to eat what they want um without having the cold dead hand of the state telling them no you, you can't do that um but I think on that note, it's probably time to move on to our final section um, to discuss the government's decision to cut the foreign aid budget. The government won a Commons vote this week 
to lock in the reduction in foreign aid from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5%, at least until the economy recovers. This was despite a rebellion among 25 Conservative MPs, including former Prime Minister Theresa May. Morgan, you've been doing work in foreign aid and, and for a number of years now. Did, did you think that this was the right call for the government in a time of fiscal strain to reduce the amount we're, we're spending on, on foreign aid and, and really, I guess, focus domestically for a period of time? Yeah, so there's a few things going on here. Uh, one is that foreign aid contributions are not popular with the general public. They do have that mentality of why should we be spending money abroad when we uh, need it here at home, especially with the pressures we've been facing from COVID. Um, so foreign aid's not very popular, but it's also drastically overestimated. So the vast majority of people in this country overestimate how much we spend on aid by orders of magnitude. I know in the US, they spend 1.7% of their budget on foreign aid, and the American public think that they spent 25% of the budget on foreign aid. So this is a mass, like massively overestimated expenditure. At the same time, targets on aid tend to uh, result in a lot of excess spending. Um, if, a government, if a government body is being told they have to spend a certain amount, a lot of the time is uh, that money is squandered at the end of the budgetary cycle because they need to reach that target. I'm not a big fan of top-down aid, and the government targets tend to be big top-down projects to spend a lot of money. Um, But it's not to say development doesn't play an important role in our geopolitical strategy. It is a huge source of soft power for the UK. There are a lot of worthy causes that we need to be helping with, especially in this COVID era and um, dealing with famines in Yemen and things like that. So there absolutely are things that we should be doing. But I think the hubbub from the commons was maybe making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill in terms of the percentage of the budget that we are actually spending on aid, how much of that aid is effective and how much of it is wasted money and how much this is actually going to have an impact on our aid delivery. There's that whole irony of the last few years that as the economy has grown Uh, more than expected. It's resulted in the government having to very quickly at the end of the financial year, increase the amount of aid spending and find projects to to throw money at. And now in the COVID era, because the economy has massively shrunk, even if you didn't change the target of the percentage of the economy, the overall amount of money would have to decrease anyway. So it does seem quite arbitrary. You think the amount of money you'd want to spend on aid or the amount of projects that are worthwhile funding should not arbitrarily change based upon your estimates of of GDP. But I I think there's probably a a broader moral question here, though, isn't there, Daniel, about should a rich country be spending more money uh, rather than less, whatever that more money happens to be, um, supporting projects in developing countries? Uh, I saw a, a little cheeky smile when you mentioned it was a moral question there, because you know I'm just going to go full utilitarian on you straight away. Now, I, I think when you look at the MPs here that are, are voting in favour of cutting the foreign aid target, there, there's two kind of schools of understanding. The first is, I think, more of a, a technical objection, the kind of idea that, well, we, we're still in the situation in the UK where most of our aid is ineffective, it doesn't work, it's not well targeted, all the kind of classic libertarian objections that have been true i think for you know the past couple of decades and certainly before that but i think are increasingly uh, less accurate as to what uk aid is actually like i think we've learned the lesson about not spending as much on the kind of economic development side of aid and a lot more focus on humanitarian projects and, and vaccination campaigns and these sort of things where aid actually is very effective and, and does tend to work 
Um, and UK Aid is more transparent than ever as well. It's very easy. You can just go on the um, the different website and, and check like, what is being spent on and there's independent evaluations of the projects and whatnot. So that's one side of the objection that I don't think is particularly good. The other one, and this comes to the moral issue, is related to simply valuing the lives of Brits at a substantially higher level to those of people who live abroad. And I, you know, talked about this before in previous episodes. I think fundamentally that that's wrong, but I think almost everyone holds that to that at least to some extent, right? You care more about your neighbour than you do about someone on the other side of the world. You care more about someone who lives in your country than you do about someone who who lives on a different continent. It's intuitively it makes a lot of sense, and it's the kind of common presumption of most people's uh, everyday morality, even if that's true. And I think that almost everyone accepts that it is so. We have to conduct the debate in in such terms. How true is it? Do you value a life uh, of someone who needs water aid or humanitarian assistance um, in sub-Saharan Africa at one hundredth of the value of your neighbours, at one thousandth, at one ten thousandth? And if it's somewhere in that, as soon as you can get a rough estimation or a, a rough kind of guide as to how much you value a foreign life compared to your own, then you can start to think about, well, okay, here's a level of foreign aid spending that should be acceptable to you, given that you hold that moral belief. Um, the problem is that I think most people don't think in such kind of black and white, cold terms. You know, they, th- they think in, in, in more general moral terms about, well, we should be spending this at home rather than abroad, rather than we should be spending 90% more at home than we should abroad, because in my utilitarian calculus, I value a British life at, you know, nine times more, etc. There's There's a fascinating kind of moral progress here, isn't there? There's something uh, Peter Singer talks about in uh, the expanding circle that over time mm. we've, we've come to include more people uh, in our circle of those who we care about. Uh, and, in some sense, you could say foreign aid is a miraculous invention in, in the first place from a, a kind of human evolutionary perspective, because historically we barely cared about anyone outside of the kind of 100 and, 150 people in our tribe. And now we have an entire welfare state that redistributes money quite viciously around our nation, and that's relatively uncontroversial. And then more broadly, we have a demand to, to spend money overseas uh, and although that's not necessarily a high consensus, in fact, I think the public's, as you've rightly identified, Morgan, even if they're misguided about the amount of money they think is being spent on aid, they do certainly have the perspective that, that less money should be spent on foreigners and more money should be spent domestically. So maybe there's there's a question there about to what extent is the the, the, the circle expanding and maybe it hasn't expanded enough and, and the, over time it might expand some more and then there'll be more support for, for foreign aid. Um, I, I think on the technical question, though, the, there's also a question in my mind always about, and there's something you talk about, Morgan, is that the trade versus aid question. So I, we know the UK government is very good at doing metrics and considering the effectiveness of the aid it's doing, and it's actually pretty well targeted. And Sam Bowman argues all the time that it's actually a good example of what the critics of foreign aid have, have said over the years. But aid isn't always necessarily good. Sometimes there are other steps you can take, like removing barriers to trade that could actually be more beneficial uh, to developing countries in terms of growing their economies. Yeah, absolutely. So as as you mentioned, Sam does say that aid uh, has grown more effective and it has um, gotten more transparent. So we can uh, kind of identify projects that do work and projects that don't work. But at the same time, uh, those are all very, t- tend to be uh, very targeted. They tend to be targeted on maybe infrastructure like toilets, schools, hospitals, or uh, humanitarian aid, like Dan said. But when you 
are too heavily involved in a foreign country and they and and you re- start getting towards uh an era of of aid dependency where a country relies on foreign aid to operate its most basic services um that's just not sustainable because the aid will always leave the humanitarians will always pack up and go to the next place and you tend to leave countries in a state of disarray and what you can do to create more sustainable uh change is opening up markets, making sure that you're engaging with different countries and trading with them, providing them a service that they find valuable so that you can uh, work your way up the, the added value chain. Um, I mean, you've, you've seen this with South Korea. They were dirt poor for so long and they opened up, liberalized their markets and skyrocketed to prosperity and gave the entire world so many services and goods for that. So we're much better off globally because of the success of South Korea and the success of India and China and Singapore, all of these places that have through liberalization and opening their, their borders to trade have lifted themselves out of poverty. I think, yeah, another element of that as well in terms of thinking, what what can we do in the West? Well, a big story here is about immigration and, and remittances. People who come from developing countries, they work in Western countries where they get much higher incomes and they send money back to, to their, their country of origin. And in fact, global remittances substantially higher than the amount we spend on foreign aid. Uh, so you get quite big transfers and, and quite meaningful transfers to other countries. Um, and we're currently looking at the issue of just all the kind of red tape and regulation that goes around international financial transactions that, that puts an effective huge tax on those remittances. So that's not something else I think the West could think about. Well, yes, yeah, spending more on foreign aid is great, but also what, what are the barriers that, that actually hurt developing countries that we put in place in our financial system, often for good reasons around financial crime and uh, people trafficking or wh- whatever else it may be, but are actually quite costly and, and just mean that the transaction costs to get money around the world are just far, far higher than it should be. And that that's something that's hurting some of the, literally the poorest people on the planet. And you can always incorporate those metrics into how you analyze what the UK does for other countries. You can include trade differentials in this, you know, target for aid. You can include remittances and, and transfers in that way and, you know, include human capital transfers. If, if someone comes here and learns how to be a doctor or studies at a university and then goes home, that's a net benefit for this country. And so that can kind of be incorporated into how the UK exercises um, their moral duty to other countries. Mm. And I think it's worth kind of inclusion, just thinking about the extent to which um, a lot of these places that we look upon, you know, as, as economic backwaters are developing, you know, historically it was, it was the Koreas and the, the Japans and then the Indias and the Chinas. And now countries right across Africa are adopting kind of freer trade and, and as a result of increasing their, their quality of life quite substantially, obviously COVID is going to be a bit of a, dampener in that overall story but i think there is there is good news in terms of development even if it's not talked about as, as much as it should and uh, that kind of poverty alleviation at the, the base level um is a great story for humanity well on that relatively optimistic note i just want to thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the pin factory podcast you've been listening to uh, myself matthew lesh i'm the head of research at the asi and my colleagues daniel pryor who is our Head of Programs, and Morgan Schonemeyer, our Head of External Affairs. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and subscribe, as well as tune in next week for some more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.